0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I am doing great because award-winning author Heather Holm is returning to the podcast to talk about her most recent book called Wasps. It's a guide for Eastern North America, and it focuses on their biology, diversity, and role as beneficial insects and pollinators of native plants. She is truly a champion for a group of insects that is largely maligned and greatly misunderstood. The ones we generally have negative interactions with, as you're going to hear, are a mere fraction of the wasp diversity that's out there, and they offer so much fascinating natural history and potential for new discoveries. But Heather is way better situated to talk about this, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Heather Holm. I hope you enjoy. All right, Heather Home, welcome back to the podcast. It is so great to have you here. I'm so excited to talk about this book today, but for those that haven't listened to our previous episode, although I'm going to encourage them to do so, how about we start off with a brief intro. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. It's it's great to be back and invited back for a second episode. Oh, of course. Most of my work is doing pollinator conservation work and tying that back into Uh, native plant communities (laughs) so in my spare time i i author books that sort of showcase the the plant pollinator mutualisms so today we have uh the fun topic of talking about everybody's favorite insect
0: wasps (laughs) (laughs) i i love that you refer to this as a spare time activity because what you accomplish in every publication you put out is truly a masterful work of of literature but to me seems almost like it has to take more than just a part-time venture on the side.
1: <laughs> it's funny you say that I had a conversation with a woman last week. She said, "How long did you start writing this when you were 4?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, "There's so much information in this book. I can't see how you had the time to do it." But I love it. Um I can't help myself. Sometimes I just I just love information and details and And then relating that back to what I see in the field with these particular species, you know, I just feel I I have a hard time um, calling information out of books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least you translate it in a way that is super digestible. And I I find you as a constant source of inspiration and information for my own life, uh, because I am far more in the plant realm. uh, But I appreciate because plants are at the center of it all, their interactions, and and what better way to talk about it than organisms that visit their flowers and are integral in sort of the life history of a plant. But what got you onto the bend? Are you sort of entomology first, plants second, or was it plants and then realizing, hey, plants need other organisms to do what they need to do as well?
1: Yeah, no, I came from the, the plant side of things. Nice. So more <laughs> traditional horticulture transitioning to... Uh, native plant landscaping, um, then ecological restoration, and then really sort of circle back back to my first love of entomology and insects. So, it, I mean, it wasn't really until I was started working in those those native plant communities mm. to really see that insect diversity, and then also to observe patterns year after year of many of those interactions you just mentioned matt so you know a specific plant is attracting the same characters if you want to call them that (laughs) um year after year and so that's really what i call sent sent me down the rabbit hole and you know really wanted to better understand these these mutualisms and why certain species were visiting certain plants
0: rabbit hole is about the only way you could describe getting into this world and and you are obviously a curious person because i don't think you'd be here if you weren't right and you know plants in and of themselves are fascinating and are full of rabbit holes but when you start looking at these interactions every day is a potential to learn something new to explore see something new and and if you start getting into gardening no matter what scale bringing native plants in is is a great way to start interacting with the insect world at the very least
1: (laughs) oh absolutely i mean depending on where people are living you plant you know something in the monarda genus and step back and and wait for this bonanza visitation of different insects so it really doesn't it it can start with one plant and people really get hooked and Now, as you know, pollinators are a hot topic, so I think there's just more and more people out actively planting and then doing that observation of curiously trying to figure out what what they are attracting to their garden or out in the natural area that they may be hiking. So I'm trying to help people figure out what those particular insects (laughs) that they may be finding are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up monarda uh, and and just the mint family in general, because, you know, obviously we like a diversity of plants wherever we can put them. But when I plant mints, especially monardas, pycnanthemum, uh, Mm. suddenly the array of the diversity of visitors increases. And I was really excited that you went from bees into this category of wasps because... People think yellow jackets, they think paper wasps and the the you know, the the hairs on the back of their necks stand up. I've had some pretty negative encounters, but you know, you almost gotta respect something that is that big and could put that much of a hurt on you in its own way. But at the same time, the diversity of weird ones, like things I've never seen before until I put these plants on the landscape suddenly opened this new door. And and that's what's great about your book, Wasps, A Guide to Eastern North America, is that you get a wonderful selection of just a little bit of the diversity that's out there.
1: Yeah, as I said to you before we went on air, it really just kind of skims the surface. <laughs> and the book... Um, I decided to focus on, you know, those the common species that do frequently visit flowers as a segue from the pollinator world and the people interested in pollinators uh, and keeping it tied to plants. But yeah, as you said that the mint family is astounding. I mean, the nectar is highly sought after by not just wasps, but another, a number of other sort of flower visiting insects that aren't bees. Um, So it it can really be a powerhouse for people that may want to attract various beneficial insects for different purposes, such (laughs) as pest population control. So yeah, yeah, I always say plant some plants in the mint family near your veggie garden, and (laughs) at least, you know, you can start to bring in some of the the predatory insects that can help with some pest insects on your veggies, for example.
0: Yeah. Last summer, we got a great video of a wasp that I had just seen in the garden, move over to our vegetable garden and start tearing up some hornworms. They were just ripping them off the tomatoes. I was like, yes, it's working free pest control.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of what people, I think, you know, have forgotten, right? We used to have these intact habitats (laughs) that were providing all of these insect needs. So for those ones such such as wasps that are, you know, predatory and looking for not only viable places to nest, but they also need very specific prey in a lot of cases. Mm. And so those components get quickly broken down with, you know, habitat fragmentation. So it's it makes a lot of sense if we put in the the plants next to the veggie garden that we're kind of starting to piece back those elements that the insects need.
0: Yeah. And for people that find themselves, you know, getting bored with everyday life. I mean, again, going back to this idea of just discovery and, and seeing things you've never seen before, what better way than to just put a few plants on the landscape? And, you know, you mentioned just kind of touching the surface in this book. And and one of the things you did that I really appreciate is you put that phylogeny right in the beginning and showing, you know, okay, here is just a subset of it. And there's whole sections of that tree, which are probably extremely large and elaborate in their own right, that you're like, we're just not going to touch these right now. (laughs) You know, even trying to put together a book of just the flower visiting wasps in Eastern North America. I mean, that's a, that sounds very niche, but this is a tome, a beautiful, well put together, easily digest, easy to digest home, but a big book nonetheless.
1: Yeah, it is a bit of a beast <laughs> as far as you don't want to carry it out in the field. Um, but I really tried to make it an attractive book and, and you know, put a lot of uh, photos in it of wasps on flowers to tie it back to flowering <laughs> plants and I don't want to call it pretty but you know it's really to draw in people that may not be very curious but um it could pique their interest given that you know the it it is all kind of tied together with with the plant so that that's the intent and as you said yeah i kind of did a tree of the order hymenoptera in the beginning and there are like whole sections just kind of grayed out that you know i I didn't even dive into, I mean, just the parasitic wasps are, you know, close to 10,000 species and the, you know, they're very difficult to identify. So um, I barely touched on that whole group. Uh, So, so really my, given my coming from, you know, my last book on bees, I really wanted to focus on the, the group of wasps, that are the ancestors of bees which I thought is really fascinating because you start to see um, a lot of similarities between the two in the Mm. nesting behavior um, you know where they nest uh, how they excavate nests and and really the primary difference is what they're stocking in their nest to feed their larvae so Mm. wasps are hunting insects or spiders and bees basically you know have become these vegetarian insects that get all of their food from flower resources. So I'm trying to draw on a lot of those similarities so people understand that wasps are as cool and fascinating (laughs) as bees, right?
0: Yeah. And I love that perspective that really wasps were the first. Well, not the first. They came before bees at least. And, And I like that you describe it that way as bees just kind of took that we occasionally visit flowers to the nth degree and became hyper specialized in their diet but you know the the ancestors of the bees themselves are doing amazing things and i'm guessing some of these behaviors are probably convergent in some ways i mean to th- people like to think of like well they're more primitive like eh, not really they're just as complex and they've evolved for just as much time and what you're seeing is the end result or the current results i should say of continued evolution and specialization adaptation that sort of stuff
1: oh yeah absolutely i wouldn't say they're more primitive by any means whatsoever i mean (laughs) they uh one of the most fascinating things i discovered well you know i i observed it out in the field but i really couldn't find much in the literature but wasps are using a similar vibratory mechanism that bees use to buzz pollinate flowers. Whoa. So that's, you know, vibrating their thoracic flight muscles at a high frequency. And a lot of ground nesting wasps will use that for um, nest excavation. So they literally are grabbing hold of soil particles hmm. with their mandibles and then almost like a jackhammer-like mechanism, (laughs) um, loosening the soil in order to excavate their ground burrow. So, I mean, that to me is pretty sophisticated, you know? And they're also, um, in some cases, flying, carrying all of the soil that they're excavating, flying away and then dropping it and then (laughs) returning to the nest. So there's no evidence around the nest that soil has been excavated. So that to me is pretty sophisticated if you want to call
0: it that. Yeah, it's almost like foresight. And when we think about that, like I think of woodpeckers, right? Not insects doing that sort of behavior and whether it's ingrained or not, that's extremely complex levels of of sort of conceptualizing what it takes to survive and i'll tell you what like some of my favorite things to do in the summer is if i find a wasp excavating a soil pet i'll just sit there and watch like they're just they're so industrious it's so deliberate but it's it's comical just how dedicated they are to a sense of like wow (laughs) i don't have that kind of dedication
1: (laughs) (laughs) no and i mean and they're so driven on that singular task That they're doing at that point in time right so they don't they can't just switch from collecting mud for nesting materials to hunting prey if you disturb them i mean they (laughs) they are on a singular mission to do that one thing (laughs) and um and i i also think too that they it's just amazing how much time they spend to prepare you know, the one we're talking about the ones that actually build a nest, Mm -hmm. Um, the amount of time that they spend, if they have to collect these extra materials such as mud to create the nest or line Mm. the nest before that, they can even go and look for the food source to put in the nest before they even lay the egg. So they're doing a whole lot of work just to create this nice little environment for the, their, their future offspring. And, (laughs) um, I find that, you know, that's really kind of parental care, right? That they, they they're, they're doing that, but ultimately for the most wasps, other than social wasps, they don't see their offspring um, (laughs) turn into adults. They're, they're long, (laughs) long gone. So
0: yeah, yeah, that's dedication, right? But that's a great point to bring up and similar to bees, we will be most familiar with those that form colonies, the yellow jackets, the paper wasps, the ones that tend to be around us and, and give us the hardest time if you're you know, inclined to bothering them or unfortunate enough to bother them. But the vast majority of wasps are not living that way, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. So if we um, include the, well, we don't include those parasitic species you know, that's about 10,000 in North America. So the remaining about 8,000, and oh, I'm just giving approximate numbers. Roughly speaking. Um, yeah, one and a half percent of those remaining 8,000 8, species are social. Wow. So that's that's a drop in the bucket, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the, like you said, the rest are sol- sol- nesting solitary nests, such, similar to bees. and And we don't have negative interactions with those wasps they don't actively defend their nest Um, we can disturb their nest nothing really happens so it's that one and a half percent of social wasps that defend their nest and that's when we have a negative interaction yeah so that's important to keep in mind Um, like you said you can sit next to a wasp while they're industriously you know gathering mud or something for their nest but that's that's a solitary species they don't they don't care whatsoever that you want to hang out with them while they do that (laughs) right
0: yeah yeah I feel like yellow jackets are very aware you're there but most of the wasps I encounter in the garden out in the wild doing really anything else don't even pay me any and if they do it's to get away because I'm trying to take their picture I mean you couldn't have asked for an organism that wants less to do with us
1: yeah yeah and I just just often just simplified if i'm you know giving a presentation i say the the flower is the restaurant and the (laughs) restaurant is not what what gets defended it's the house so you know yeah you can get up close and and sometimes they give you a stink eye (laughs) when you're trying to photograph them on flowers (laughs) but um they're they're pretty harmless they don't have any reason to to defend the the food right so
0: Yeah, And so you mentioned diet early on as sort of a distinguishing factor. Bees went all the way into sort of this vegetarian world, but wasps dabble in omnivory. Um, So what are they doing at flowers? Is it nectar pollen or is it just like why are wasps visiting flowers if they have juicy caterpillars and other insects to eat?
1: Yeah, that's the strange thing. So the the adult females spend, you know, all of their time trying to find specific insects or spiders to mm. put in the nest to feed the larva. But as adults, they pretty much switch to, I guess you could say vegetarian non-insect diet. So (laughs) they're primarily looking for food sources, high in carbohydrates. So sugary substances. Mm. So that can include flower nectars, um, honeydew. So the waste of, you know, um, plant feeding insects, um, tree sap, uh, you know, so it's really the, the social wasps that will Sometimes, and particularly the yellow jackets, uh, still <laughs> dabble <laughs> in meat eating while they're adults. So they will scavenge, um, eat dead insects, dead birds. Um, they When they capture their prey, like you described, the the, the hornworms, that was likely a paper wasp. Yep. Um, they will just grab it and then just start chewing it up. <laughs> so they actually ingest some of those fluids and the hemolymph of the prey before they get it into this manageable sized piece hmm. that they can take back to their social nest. Wow. But yeah, for the the solitary species sugary substances, when that's where flower nectar comes into play, um, more obviously more research is needed for whether in fact that they are purposefully consuming pollen. Mm. Um, a couple of studies sort of looked at what are the contents in their gut, and they did find quite a bit of pollen, um, but it's not really uh, it's not really well documented that they're actually consuming pollen when they're on flowers. We do on, in Western um, North America have pollen wasps, and oh. they do collect pollen. They're more like bees, um, but we don't have that particular um, family in, in Eastern North America.
0: Well, all right, then. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to anecdotal observations in our own garden, like I mentioned before, the pycnanthemum really kind of attracted one type of wasp, uh, the Arnoglotum, arnoglossum, the uh, large plantains, the asteraceae, they seem oh, to attract yeah. another kind. Of, like, is there the degree of specialization among wasps when it comes to floral visitation that we see in their, their bee ancestors or cousins?
1: Well, that's something I was trying to explore, looking at you know the specific plants that had been documented that a, a particular species visited. Um, there are some really interesting examples. There's a grasshopper hunting wasps in the in the genus Tachytes, and that wasp pretty much only gets observed visiting swamp milkweed wow. <laughs> for whatever reason. Huh. Um, but yes, you it, and you know of course flower visitation would be obviously dependent on whether uh, the wasp is solitary or social. And if it's solitary, it's really going to be active for some sort of slice in in, in time or during the growing season. And so you're also looking at what what plants are co-flowering at the same time as mm. the wasp activity. So it really kind of starts to get complex quickly. In the book, I, I try and list all of the documented uh, native plants that that particular species visits. Um, But just, you know, I just ran out of time to really synthesize that further.
0: And so with that in mind, I mean, where do you begin to compile that kind of data? I'm sure it's got to come from multiple resources, right? But like, you know, you're at the mercy of who's observing first and foremost, and then who's writing it down or documenting it in some way. Like, where do you go to even begin to compile lists like this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that, that was the challenge with some of these more, I wouldn't call them obscure, but solitary species (laughs) that I had been seeing and photographing and wanted to include in the book. So then I started, you know, looking at the literature of, what's known about its natural history and biology. And, you know, I would just come up empty handed a lot of a lot of times. And, but then I really just started to go back further in time into the literature and found found a lot, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, where, you know, there were certain couples and individuals that were spending a lot of time out in the field, doing a lot out of um, natural history documentation but in some cases they would also mention those those floral interactions. Wow. So that was sort of the historical piece um and then any more current literature <laughs> of course. But then I I really heavily rely on a lot of um citizen scientist sites, you know, bug guide or iNaturalist. Nice. um that you know you can sort of sort through uh, a species page and look at the <laughs> plants and thankfully I pretty good with plants so I can (laughs) at least get a lot of them to genus level um, just sorting through images but that takes a lot of time yeah yeah
0: yeah. I will always parrot this in every opportunity like make observations because you don't know who is going to make use of them and what new information they can provide I mean one picture of what you said sort of the quote-unquote obscure wasp species on a plant could be the first time that's been physically documented in some sense Um, But, you know, absolutely. It dovetails really well with this idea that I'm hoping it's coming back. I see indications that it's coming back largely due to like iNaturalist bug guide, just niche groups that you find on the Internet is this this time lag of there was a time period when natural history was very publishable material and, you know, sort of the ivory tower element of publishing and science these days has largely gone away from that. And I'm, again, I'm really hoping it's coming back, but I, I love that these anecdotes kind of reveal those patterns where you really did have to go back to 1800s when people were actually taking the time to observe and write this down and people were willing to publish it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, you could say that's an unfortunate thing, I guess about, um, You know what what research is funded now and i'm not saying all the research that is funded now is excellent by no means (laughs) but um but yeah what that has created is large knowledge gaps right so we we basically to my understanding you know around the 1960s or so a lot of that natural history related funding sort of dried up and so between then and now we have a ton of different species that weren't explored um, in depth historically that we really know nothing about and that's what i think gets me up in the morning and gets me out my (laughs) front door every day is like as you said matt there's quite literally something new to discover every single day if you get out there and observe and document Um, it's probably not known to science particularly with you know wasps or some other obscure sort of flower visiting <laughs> insects.
0: And so with that, you know, you're someone who combs the literature regularly, you're curious and in your own right, but then you go and make amazing books like this. So you spend so much time reading widely in the subject. And I'm curious in your experience in writing a book about wasps, is it like what we see with certain groups of plants where yeah not a lot of people are jumping at the you know the opportunity to dive into poison ivy in a big way because obviously many people are sensitive to it do wasps kind of fall to the wayside when it comes to literature on pollinators especially but insects in general or is there a dedicated group of people really looking at wasps through time
1: um i would say there's there's many dedicated wasp taxonomists um you know but and researchers but very few making that that flower connection. Mm. So again, going back into the literature, uh, books that have been previously written, you know, that mention of flower visitation or potential pollination was usually one page or a half a page. Hmm. So I, I I just kept coming up with nothing, like nothing in the <laughs> historical literature about um, other than the fig wasp example, which is well documented, <laughs> yeah but for you know more North American or Eastern North American sort of look at wasps as pollinators it, it would just be mentions like, oh, yeah, and wasps sometimes can pollinate or visit flowers. <laughs> so so that's really where I thought, hmm okay, I can do my best to start that conversation with this book, right? to. Yeah really bring attention to the fact that they are not only um, frequently visiting flowers but they are providing other ecosystem services you know they're hunting um, various uh, pest insects so we should start to like wasps because they do provide quote unquote benefit to humans
0: (laughs) Yes. yeah it is tough because in any sort of science really anything you want to have generalizations that make communication easier for the groups of people that aren't thinking about this stuff in any major detail but then the other side of that is you see these mass generalizations like you bring up wasps and everyone's like nope burn it with fire danger you know like it's just meme central for how much people hate them and in reality they're, they're hating just like the like as you said the tiniest subset of wasps and and really missing out on a lot of beauty and intricacy. And that's another thing that's great about your book is your use of macro photography just opens this world of appreciation for a largely maligned group of insects. But it just shows you that there's so much complexity and the patterning on some of these, the structure of the head, the abdomen. I mean, it's, there's so much variety that everyone's going to find something that's like, oh my God, that's the most beautiful organism I've ever seen. I mean, there's so many times Sarah was looking at this and going, that is adorable. And I need to see this in person. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate the the degree of detail you were able to capture in these photographs.
1: Yeah. Um, Photography is a hobby of mine. And so I enjoyed doing the photography for my books. Although for this book I was writing during COVID, so (laughs) I relied a a lot more heavily on other awesome photographers to sort of get get it done and have the photography I needed. But having, yeah, the larger format photo I hoped would help with um, those identification features that I was pointing out. But also, yeah, as you said, to show people that they're diverse. They're beautiful. They um, have amazing features, and um, for very good reasons in some cases, right? The yeah. eastern cicada killer wasp is enormous because <laughs> she had the females have to carry cicadas back to their nest, and <laughs> yeah. you know the cicada can weigh two times the weight of the female wasp. So that's a pretty amazing feat of strength, just yeah. just alone that, right?
0: Yeah, they are impressive insects, to say the least. And that is one of the ones you can almost time it by their emergence of, I will get texts and emails from family members going, oh my God, this is the most terrifying thing. I'm like, they're harmless. They're just looking for cicadas.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so they're, as you know, ground nesting and they, big, they dig these really big burrows that almost look like rodent holes. And <laughs> the males, like many solitary bees, have um sort of territories and patrolling behavior so when you get that emergence happening in a nesting aggregation from the previous growing season and a bunch of giant wasps are flying around the ground it can really freak people out right
0: (laughs) But this aggregation idea is really cool too. And that's something I've heard from sort of the solids, quote unquote, solitary bee literature is like people think a lot about how eusociality evolves. It's actually rare in the organisms that exhibit it, like you said, one ish percent in wasps. And you start thinking about how does a, a largely solitary group go towards this eusocial behavior. And those aggregations offer an interesting sort of almost evolutionary stepping stone an example maybe not an execution right i mean that's it's kind of how it yeah. works
1: yeah not necessarily but huh? um nesting aggregation to me is more tied to um well when we're talking about ground nesting species of course that it's that that pre- the soil preference and the oh, theme, okay. it's very specific preferences that a species huh. needs so in the bee world you often see you know nesting aggregations of a species that like or only like to nest in compacted sand and in wasps um, like there's the sand a number of sand wasps i feature in my book and those females nest in loose sand so if we Mm. look at that from a landscape context how many how many places are (laughs) offering bare loose sand right so aggregations can occur because of limitations of Wow. that very specific habitat or soil type.
0: That is fascinating. And yeah, had like think about how much geology affects plants. Yeah. It's also affecting insects like wasps. And I hadn't thought about it that way. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And, and then, you know, in addition to that, so you have like I, that example I just gave a wasp that has to nest or will always only nest or prefers to nest in some specific soil type or situation such as that. But then in addition to that, if they're solitary, they probably have very specific prey Mm. that they will, you know, they'll only hunt flies or plant bugs. And that can be a few a handful of families in in that particular uh, insect order. And then you think about those actual insects that they're hunting and they may have specific going back to plants they may have specific plant preferences Mm. right so this plant bug may only like to feed on certain kinds of plants which occur in a certain habitat that has (laughs) to occur close to where the wasp that likes certain soil types wants to hunt it so it can get right complex pretty quickly yeah um
0: Yeah. yeah i mean a big cry to preserve not only wide stretches of potential habitat, but have habitats that vary. Heterogeneity on the landscape is important because, yeah, you can't have all of one thing and expect the diversity of life to follow that. And right. I'm wondering too, you think about how insects and plants directly interact through herbivory. There's got to be a lot of seasonality, given what you just outlined in terms of this complexity of like, this is why I see certain types of wasps heavily during certain times of the growing season.
1: Yep, absolutely. So for the many of those solitary species, you know, pretty narrow prey specificity. So mm. as you said, like that we mentioned the cicada wasp, right? Um, they are hunting dog day cicadas, so they're hmm. generally active in the middle of the summer when it's hot, and so <laughs> that's when the the timing of emergence and nest construction occurs when when their prey is in high availability. So, you know, and and then in other cases, there are cavity nesting species that um, hunt caterpillars. So, and they may produce multiple generations throughout the growing season. So, the first generation would be hunting a a different group of caterpillars. And then the next generation, of course, coming out later would be hunting different kinds of caterpillars and so on. So,
0: um,
1: it can depend on whether they're. You know, producing one generation per year or multiple, and so on, and wow, and yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: this is a hefty layer cake. Really quickly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just
1: see a bunch of lines going back and forth. Yeah, right. I see <laughs> all of these connections.
0: <laughs> I've seen people try to do that for like three organisms, and it is already a nightmare. And I, geez, and this it just goes back to the, how many unknowns there really are and will continue to be, which can be daunting can be intimidating, but it can also be very exciting if you just want something fresh in your life, year in and year out. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I'm always thinking it back from the the plant community perspective. You know, I, I spend a lot of time doing ecological restoration, so mm. I'm thinking about all that I know about these insects and what, you know, just looking at one species and its needs and how that relates to Target plant communities and, yeah. you know, like you said, the heterogeneity, and and then you just kind of get overwhelmed because. <laughs> <laughs> Just hope for the best right yeah and that's <laughs>
0: but, you know again generalizations are helpful but at the same time they they don't get us very far in the plant this for bumblebees okay which bumblebees plant this for monarchs okay there's more than just monarchs they also need other plants to feed on you know and that's why i i, I try to say like when it comes to recommendations there's no like best plant for the most it's just plant a variety plant diversity plant as much native as you can to your region and just yeah. watch what happens because it's going to be wild and unpredictable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right, and we can learn from the the kind of the wild and unpredictable, yeah. or, or just even trying different landscape management strategies. Right, so totally. keeping an area relatively undisturbed with, you know, leaf litter or whatever, or keeping an area um, without plant debris on the ground and bare. And just, I I always encourage people to experiment because that's, that's Mm. really when you learn about specific preferences, or you may attract a new species that you've never seen before. Um, And you will learn from all of these different things that you're applying in a, in your landscape. So totally. I, yeah, I, I made that, you know, discovery of sitting and looking at my garden and I had cut off a, a plant stock and then I watched a bee go in it and I had this like aha moment thinking well of course I knew bees nests and cat plant stems and cavities but I never thought of that we could actually prune off you know old flower stalks and they would actually use them so so that was just this me stumbling upon um <laughs> something that I did inadvertently as a garden maintenance practice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it resulted in a really useful and easy to understand infographic. I'm guessing that's where that came from. Uh, that observation led to you and your colleagues putting together a really useful infographic with collaboration with Xerxes society on just yep. better practices for printing. It's not this like, let everything just go, let it be. People want to tinker. They want to manage their landscape, but like you can do it in a way that looks good and also, really helps
1: yeah absolutely and you know i have to always stop myself because i'm thinking from a like a a planned community perspective and you know that's not possible it's not possible for me to burn my midwestern (laughs) you know yard right Right. i would love to but um that's just not going to happen Uh, have the fire department here in, in no time yeah so how do we how do we recreate some of those you know historically human or natural disturbances that um could really attract new species as we talked about and that's what kind of gets me curious um we can do it in different ways
0: totally yeah like you said tinker and experiment that's where discoveries are made and then just share it with people but from the plant-based perspective Obviously, wasps are visiting flowers. How are they as pollinators? Because it's one thing I have taken away from pollination biologists time and again is just because something shows up doesn't necessarily mean it's doing the trick for the flower. Are they effective in a lot of cases, or is it a mixed bag? Depends on what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, there, there really isn't a good answer to that (laughs) because you, you nailed it with saying you know pollination by an individual species is really hard to quantify, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so. And then going back to the literature, very few people even have investigated that. Mm. So, um, can we assume that you know if wasps are demonstrating certain flower preferences that they um, have the ability to move pollen around from, to the same species? Yes. Um, has that been quantified? primarily no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, that's why I called their pollination incidental. So, you know, yeah. they're not like bees purposefully um, going to flowers to collect pollen and they're, ha- they're not like bees being very hairy and adept at <laughs> moving a lot of pollen around, but they do um, in some cases do a okay job of not grooming pollen and moving it around. Yeah. But again, um that has not been really determined if they actually are pollinating the plant so
0: yeah that's fair (laughs) i mean there
1: is i mean going back to the monardas though i don't know if you have monarda punctata yeah i've seen it in florida i think it grows. oh yeah it's it's pretty
0: wide in sandy soils at least
1: that would be the plant i would start with if i was doing a wasp pollination study because You've probably witnessed this wasps love that plant Mm -hmm. and the flower structure. People think those colorful bracts are the flower petals, but they're actually these, you know, yellow flowers with maroon spots that are quite small and pollen gets deposited on the on the top of the wasp's thorax when it it inserts its head into the flower opening to feed on nectar and it's a really tough spot for them to groom or get that (laughs) pollen off so to me there's there seems to be a perfect fit with that plant Hmm. and some of the larger predatory wasps that i would assume that they're doing some pollination of that plant just based on the floral structure
0: Totally. I mean, again, it's one of those things that like just on numbers alone, it's gotta be happening. But being as important as pollination is, the caveat is, of course, it's extremely difficult to study in any meaningful causational sort of way. And so this just highlights yet again, the amount of unknowns, even among well understood or studied or at least cataloged species across the kingdoms of life.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So you have to be pretty careful. I mean, I would go as far as saying that wasps can be pollinators, but (laughs) again, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Right.
0: But again, that doesn't take away from their role in the ecosystem. And just looking at the number of species you included in this book, which is admittedly not all of them, it's biodiversity, right? And people get fired up. Like, yes, protect biodiversity. Well, guess what? All of those wasps are part of it. They're playing a role. They're we know they're predators. We know they're visiting plants. They have a function here. And they're food themselves for other organisms. Like they yeah. need to be here. We need to facilitate that and stop acting like they're all worthy of the blowtorch sort of treatment.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's there's unfortunately A common knee-jerk reaction, right, to grab for the raid can is for any kind of wasp that people see. And hopefully we can get beyond that because we'd be in big trouble if we didn't have wasps. I mean, some insect populations would really just go way out of balance (laughs) and mayhem out there. You know, they they are doing a lot of pest insect population control that we don't appreciate.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah, if you care about plants, you have to care about predators. I, I don't care what anyone says. Like Predators are an absolute prerequisite to healthy plant communities. And if you have healthy plant communities, guess what? Everything else is benefiting. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so with a book like this, you've obviously run the press junket. You've done a lot of talks. You You, you put yourself out there. How has the response been? Do you see sort of a tide changing in sort of the reception or at least people being open to the idea that wasps are awesome?
1: Well, I guess I, you know, I have a pollinator audience already. So I th- I <laughs> think, helps. you know, I'm I'm operating in this bubble, right? That <laughs> the people that I, um, maybe a group that invites me back that I formally spoke to them about bees would be willing to hear about wasps. And sure. once I sort of can convey to them some of the things we're talking about today yeah many people think they're awesome and fascinating and and I get lots of comments that people enjoy the book but that's I think you know we're talking about a narrow uh, piece of the spectrum and how I can reach uh, those folks that are maybe outside of the pollinator aficionado sort of group (laughs) Um, I'm still trying to figure that out.
0: Well, I mean, they're out there. And I think, you know, one thing I've learned in doing this is you'd be surprised who's picking this stuff up or at least who's receptive to it. And you bring a really nice approachable take to the subject. And again, it's visually stunning. I mean, you just want to flip through a book and just see some cool pictures, like by all means do it. But the hope is that that's sort of the, the, the hook, right? And you know, the other part of it, too, is, yes, there is a ton of difficult to identify species, but you, you pick up a book like this and you're like, OK, this is suddenly approachable. I can at least sit in my yard out on my balcony and go, I think it might be this or related to this at least. And with that, you know, maybe some doors are opened. You never know. But it's, at, at the same time, it's really hard to gauge what the reception is and, and the impacts truly are.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure you found that with your book as well, right, that yeah. you're reaching people you didn't ever consider would be an audience of your book. And um, yeah, if this if people want to buy this as a coffee table book, great, <laughs> <laughs> because as you said, there will be that one person that may sit down and flip through it and then really get hooked or fascinated by more information that I have in each individual species profiled. And I really put a lot of information in to highlight the differences in each individual species. You know, they yeah. have different ways they dig nests. They have different ways that they conceal nests. They have um, various ways that they transport their prey. Um, or, I mean, it just is kind of endless. <laughs> and so, to me, that's the the fascinating um, extras that you would get if you. Uh, really dive into the book so
0: yeah anytime you can combine a healthy well-rounded identification guide that includes the natural history and associations of a species I mean I am your clientele (laughs) because I you know one is useful the other is useful but when you can combine them it's it's like it's an unstoppable force pro nature
1: yeah yeah and I think that's partly because as i said i came from the plant world right and (laughs) moved into the mired in the insect world that i can't undo that connection and see that importance that we can't look at things in isolation well right that uh, nature is connected it's all part of a grander thing going on and we have to understand those interactions.
0: I mean, it's reality, right? Your your interests and the connections that you like to study, it's, it's, you, it's a metaphor for life in general. It's unextricable from itself. But right, right. when you look at a feat of writing a book like this, uh, it's intimidating, especially I've, I've written one. It's, this, is, this is quite the feat. What would you say were some of the biggest challenges in trying to put this together?
1: I would say just finding information on some of the species. Mm. I had to toss out a lot of species I would have liked to include it. No. Um, whole genera, I maybe only featured three species, and there's a ton of others that <laughs> people would maybe frequently observe. Um, but simply because there weren't any Natural history papers or information that I could piece enough together to round out a a, a profile for that species. So that's Hmm. one thing that I regret is just the information wasn't there. And hopefully going forward, you know, more people are inspired to to study wasps and to help fill in those knowledge gaps that we talked about um, and then the other thing I guess was the pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> the pandemic gave oh. us all some, you know, different amounts of time or yeah. reallocated how we spent time. Um, but it did throw a big sort of wrench in the works of, you know, I had a few trips planned to get, no. you know, see some of those Southern species and better understand and document their behavior. And so I didn't get a chance to do that, which was unfortunate.
0: Yeah. Well, again, this is a start. And that's what's great is these books, you know, is is anyone that searches for completeness in any natural history stuff is going to be vastly disappointed because it's always a start. Yeah. It's always more to know, more to do. And if anything else, this serves as a great jumping off point and an inspiration for anyone that just gets inspired by it, and wants to take the next step or go make an observation that hasn't ever been recorded before. I mean, that's what's great is like so much of this could be the first time anyone's really written down, taken a picture of, a video of and and reported it to the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that's like I said, it gets me out of bed and out the front door every day. But then you also, you know, once a book goes to print, that it's it's not set in stone, but it's like sure enough, you know, 10 days later, if my book goes to print, I'll be outside and find a whole different thing that I wanted to include, right? Or I get these awesome photos of those species nesting that I discover at a new site I visit. (laughs) Then that's okay, though, right? Because um, the next book or the next project, I can sort of wrap all that new information in. As you said, it's never ending. That's That's to me what is so exciting about just generally a natural history. And we, you know, you can, you can have a a life fulfilled with new discovery.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Get inspired and get out there. But Mm -hmm. with that in mind, if people want to pick up a copy of this book, any of your other award-winning books, or just learn more about all of the effort and work that you do to celebrate nature and all of its complexity, where do you recommend they go looking?
1: Well, they can find the book uh, from the publisher, which is Pollination Press or or the usual other places such as Amazon. And then if they want to learn more about my work and some of those uh, resources we talked about, like the stem nesting graphic, my uh, author website is pollinatorsnativeplants.com.
0: Excellent. Well, Heather, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. You are a true inspiration for natural history and for singing the song of largely maligned groups of insects. We really appreciate all of the effort you put in to do all of the work that you do, but also taking the time to tell us about it. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. I love uh, having an opportunity to be on your podcast.
0: Anytime. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, keep up the amazing work. And I hope you get lots of more adventures on the horizon. Thank you. Alrighty. Cheers. All right. Fantastic and inspirational stuff. Heather is a wonderful science communicator. She is a champion for insects and plants alike, and really just ecosystem health in general. And I can't recommend her books enough. They're beautiful. They're informative. And it's that combination of being able to ID something and learn about its natural history that just is perfect. All of the links for obtaining her books, and learning more about her work can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast, as well as many ways you can support this show. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash You can pick up a copy of my book, stickers, or some of our customizable apparel. All of these ways help keep Indefensible Plants up and running. I literally couldn't be doing it without the support of people like you. At the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time,
1: watch for wasps.
0: I hope you hang in there, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.